Good morning, St. Luke's. Sorry to interrupt all that lovely chatter and talk. It's always good to uh, share the fellowship together like that. Well, it's good to be with you. As Peter said, I'm uh, Ray Costa, and uh, I feel very honoured today to be invited to uh, share with you. Of course, New Zealand at the moment, we're a real winning team. You know, the All Blacks did win last night, as did the White Ferns, as did the Black Caps. So uh, we're in a winning streak, and of course, St. Luke's is in a winning streak as well. So it is good to be with you, and um, I thank Joseph for inviting me to share with you today. Today is the um, Sunday in the Christian calendar that is closest to All Souls or All Saints Day. And when Joseph asked me to speak this morning, he said, Hey, Ray, I'd like you to do a bit of work around that theme of All Souls or uh, All Saints. As I will share with you in a few moments, one of the aspects of uh, the season of all saints or all souls is uh, thinking about people who have died and uh, the afterlife and what lies beyond death and all that sort of thing. And I could just imagine Joseph sitting here one Sunday knowing that all saints and all souls was coming up and he looked around over the congregation. And I mean, all the people are so young here that he thought, well, they're not going to be able to speak about that. And he thought, who, who is getting pretty close to crossing that barrier? Who's starting to think about heaven and afterlife? And he spotted this old gray-haired fella sitting down there at the back, and he thought, he'll do. So he invited me to speak. So uh, here I am today to uh, share with you a little bit about these things. And so I've decided to share with you um, uh, uh, on Haggioi, hope, and heaven. Haggioi is a word you probably don't know. It's a Greek word, but you'll, we'll come to that in a moment. As Joseph has often said to us um, when he speaks, and particularly following the Christian calendar or the liturgical calendar of the Christian church, the reason why we do focus on uh, certain aspects at different seasons of the year is that it's part of our pilgrimage of being a disciple. How does the church actually help us to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And so we follow uh, this pattern. Last week, Joseph was speaking about uh, some of the races, and we heard the, the story of the Rotorua Marathon. Fantastic. And uh, the race to become a good disciple of Jesus is one of the most important races that you and I are involved in. It is an important one. And the church tries to help us and coach us in that race as we look at different aspects of faith, discipleship, following Jesus through the year. And these different seasons and celebrations within the Christian year are there to encourage us, inspire us, uh, challenge us uh, in our day-to-day life and our day-to-day walk. I guess most of us have heard of the season of Advent, or as we say here in St. Luke's, the moment before the moment. Uh, Christmas, Easter, uh, Pentecost, many will know also of Epiphany. But I wonder how many of us actually follow the season of all Hallows' Tide, as it's called in uh, in the Christian calendar. I suspect very few of us. But all Hallows' Tide is spread over three days, Uh, The 31st of October, which is tomorrow, is Halloween. Uh, 1st of November is All Saints Day. 
And the 2nd of November is All Souls Day. And of course, you probably know that the word Halloween is just the shortened version of All Hallows Evening. All Hallows Evening shortened down to uh, Halloween. In the early church, uh, they used to set aside um, a different day for saints, so that on the 1st of January it'll be Saint so-and-so, 2nd of January. But eventually there were so many martyrs and so many people died, they ran out of days of the year. So they decided that the 1st of November will be the day that we celebrate and remember all of the saints. And so it's called All Saints Day. This was considered a hallowed time. It was a time to respect and honor those that have died, the fellow Christians that have died. For us, these three days of the liturgical year are important in our discipleship for two or three reasons. Number one, it's a time in our faith pilgrimage when we should be remembering loved ones who have died, uh, people who have influenced us or impacted us in life, but it's also a time when we look forward to the future hope we have as Christians, to eternal life, to heaven. So uh, All Hallows Tide is both a backward look to people who have gone before and a forward look to where we ourselves might be going in the future, that time when we will die. I guess Halloween is pretty big at the moment, and uh, no doubt um, some of you will be uh, involved in it. Most days, Judy and I go for a bike ride somewhere around Tauranga. And uh, I've noticed as we've been biking around Tauranga that uh, a number of the fences and the number of the houses are now being dressed. In fact, some of them have been dressed for probably two weeks now for uh, Halloween. Well, <clears throat> in the sense, what I would say is the modern celebration of Halloween, not the... Uh, initial meaning of Halloween as uh, founded in the Christian church. And I think it's important we don't confuse uh, the modern celebration of Halloween with what we're talking about when we talk about the discipleship uh, part of uh, Halloween. Uh, you know, most of the modern <coughs> celebration of Halloween comes actually from the uh, 20th and 21st centuries is the, the modern celebration of Halloween. And by that I meaning, you know, ghosts and spirits and spider webs and big black spiders and dressing up and trick-and-treating and divination games and hollowed-out pumpkins and horror movies and ancestor worship or the Mexican Day of the Dead. There's a great long list of things that are now part of a, a modern-day celebration of of Halloween. Uh, that's not part of our Christian discipleship when we're talking about Halloween. Though, of course, our kids may have fun participating in some activities like tr trick and treating or dressing up, and I imagine the lollies will give them a good sugar boost, but it probably won't do much to nurture their soul as the uh, Halloween is meant to do. But we do need to understand that the origin of Halloween is Christian. It began the observance of All Hallows Tide. But like a number of other good things with a Christian beginning, Halloween changed its course and understanding over time so that the modern practice of Halloween has actually very little to do with 
uh, All Hallows Tide in the Christian calendar. This season in our Christian walk, as I've said, is a time to look back. It's a time to remember loved ones who have died, uh, our family, our friends. A time to look back and remember those people who introduced us to Jesus, who uh, taught us the path of discipleship, who um, inspired us into this walk of faith. It's a time to look back and give thanks for these people that helped us on our path of pilgrimage. The reality is we are all who we are today because of others who have gone before us. Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a good book called Outliers, and uh, in that book, one of the things he's uh, trying to show is that it doesn't matter whether you're a rock star or a sports star or a super rich billionaire um, or any of those different things, a software billionaire, a scientific genius, we get to where we are because we stand on the shoulders of others. There, there will always be people who have impacted us and built things into our lives. And uh, that is true for our Christian walk, our Christian pilgrimage. That's uh, part of how we came to be followers of Jesus. It's part of why we are here today. Somebody, somewhere, talked to us about Jesus and influenced us uh, to become a follower and a disciple. All Hallows Tide is a time when we... Take time to pause, to remember, to give thanks. Uh, Peter, when she prayed just before I came up, just spent time giving thanks. It's a good thing to do, and it is a good part of being a a Christian disciple. So regularly in my prayer life, um, I take time to think of people who have impacted me, because there are many good people who have really put me where I am today. And I give thanks for them. I am who I am in the Lord because of others who have gone before me. There are people who mentored me, guided me, corrected me, uh, helped me to understand the gospel, who helped me to read the Bible, who helped me how to pray. It's good to take time to think about these things. So over these next few days of All Hallowtide, this week that lies ahead, I would encourage you in your time of devotion, or if you prefer to go running or biking or sit and whatever, just be quiet, listen to music, take some time to think about the people who have put you where you are today in the Lord and give thanks uh, for them. And at the same time, I would also encourage you to think about uh, people who are still impacting you today. Because I am still being influenced by you people coming here Sunday by Sunday to worship, talking over a cup of coffee or whatever. You are building into my life. Uh, Joseph sits here week after week and he nurtures my soul, he feeds my spirit. There are still people uh, around. Take time to give thanks for these people. You see, these are the people that the Bible calls saints. So when we are talking about All Saints Day, we're not just thinking about people who are dead. Uh, We are saints 
according to the scripture. We who follow Jesus are called saints. The word is hagioi, and that's um, the word that I had up there before. Hagios means holy or sacred. Hagioi are the saints, what the Bible calls the saints. And uh, while most of us don't think of ourselves as saints, in fact, we probably think the exact opposite. I wish we were one, but uh, the Bible actually talks about that. We are saints not because of who we are. We are saints in God's eyes because of the work of Jesus on the cross. It is the work of Jesus on the cross that actually makes us holy. So all followers are saints, not just those people who have the word saint in front of them, like Saint Luke or Saint Peter or Saint John or no, no, no. The power of the cross, and this is something that um, I, I, I like to speak about often, the power of the cross changes our identity. The power of the cross changes who we were to who we are. And the Bible has many ways of talking about that. Before the cross, our identity in the scripture is sometimes described as carnal. Afterwards, it's, we are described as being spiritual or unsaved, redeemed, old man, new man, sinner, saint. There's a whole range of phrases that the Bible uses to talk about people who follow Jesus, and particularly about the, the change of our identity. Uh, you see, the, the cross changes our identity. The resurrection gives us hope and a future, and Pentecost empowers us to live uh, the Christian life. These three things are so important within us. I think it's summed up best by Paul in Colossians chapter 1 when Paul is speaking. It's a, a quite a long passage there in chapter, in chapter 1 of Colossians. But in verse 22, he says, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, that is the cross. And listen to these words, and you've heard them before, but just pause and take them in. The work of the cross presents you as holy, hagios, the word holy. Hagios presents you holy or saint in his sight, that's God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. <clears throat> I have meditated on those words long and hard for many, many years because I struggle to see myself like that. I am more likely to see my faults and my failings, my sin, my shame, uh, all of those things. Failure can grip. There's just a range of feelings and emotions that go through. And I've had to challenge myself. Who are you going to believe? Yourself or God? Are you going to believe what you say about yourself or will you believe what God says about you? And that's a hard, hard thing to do. And in my head, I know that I can say, God says that I am holy. God says I'm a saint. I'm hagios. I'm one of his hagioi. I'm without blemish. And I'm free from accusation. But to get it into your gut, to get it into your heart, is a much harder thing to do. But the reality is we have been made saints. 
I was interested, a couple of weeks ago, um, we sang a song, and I can't remember the words, but there was one line in one of the songs that really struck me. It said, you have made this sinner holy. You have made the sinner hagios. You have made the sinner into a saint. And it's so true. I sometimes think that the songs that we sing, and even today, you know, there were some of those songs that I was thinking that there is great theology in here. You know, we sing it. We've got to believe this stuff, too, that we actually sing. In this hallowtide season of our faith pilgrimage, so let us remember the special people in our lives, give thanks for them, and as we find encouragement and inspiration from them, let us, too, realize that we are impacting and influencing others. We're passing on that same message that we have got through our daily lives. And that's a good thing that we can do that. And I would say too as a church, as we are inspired and nurtured by Joseph week after week, in this coming week, let us all make an effort to remember Joseph in prayer and pray for him. He nurtures our soul. He feeds our spirit. So let's remember him and his family. I've got a prayer just to put up on the screen of, you know, just some of you might like a written prayer, some of you may not, but this is a, a prayer for the All Hallows Tide season. It's uh, taken out of a, a, a diary of daily prayer by John Bailey. Some of you may use it. And, uh, you know, thank you for the many spiritual presences that accompany and surround me on my spiritual journey. For the heavenly host above, for the saints who from their labors rest, the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, the martyrs, the holy and humble people, my own departed family and friends. I bless and praise your wonderful name. So that's a little bit about Haggai or um, looking backwards. What I want to do now is turn and uh, look forward. And I want to talk about hope, first of all, and then finally just a few comments on, on heaven. As I said, All, Souls, All Saints Day is the 1st of November, and All Souls Day is the 2nd of November, and these are times in our spiritual pilgrimage when we can also be looking forward to our future hope, the hope that we hold deep within our being. Uh, hope, of course, Christian hope is one of the three great graces uh, of the Christian faith. Some people call um, hope one of the great pillars of the Christian faith. You know, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love, three of the great graces or pillars of the Christian, of the Christian faith. Hope is an incredibly empowering grace. Uh, hope is something that can uh, get you through the dark times. Hope is something to hold on to when times are tough and things seem bleak and you uh, just don't know how you're going to cope. I, I once had a GP who said to me, you know, one of the lessons in life that he had found that was always important was as soon as you, before you finish your last holiday, know where your next holiday is going to be because the hope of having that new holiday coming can be actually more important than the holiday itself that hope that anticipation that something to look forward to that something to hold on to is is a, a very powerful thing and so it is with uh, Christian hope 
And hope's not just a feeling of desire or expectation. A Christian hope is much more than, than that. Christian hope is, has got an, an important aspect of trust in it. It's got an aspect of assurance in it. So it's not just wishful uh, thinking. You know, uh, some of us might hope to win lotto. Well, that's not hope. That's a desire. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's just wishful thinking. And for many people, I know someone will, but probably three million others uh, don't. Uh, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation based on God's promises. Hope is having an assurance about uh, things that are unknown or unclear that Jesus taught about. You see, there's a big difference between hope and desire. Christian hope builds a future. Now, while uh, in this season, I mean, Christian hope actually has a broad range. There's many aspects to Christian hope. But I'm going to focus on one aspect only of, of Christian hope this morning in this All Hallows season, which is the hope of eternal life, the hope of heaven, uh, the hope of personal resurrection, uh, those aspects. Because this is the hope that enables us to face death with serenity and calmness. And that hope runs right through the Bible. I'll put a few references up from the New Testament, but later on I'll mention even some of the Old Testament uh, passages that speak to us. This runs consistently through. And you see that we, we as that Colossians passage um, says, that Colossians 1, uh, 1.5 passage says, you know, we have this conviction. We are not on our way to death. We are on our way to life. And it is a hope that's laid up in heaven, as Paul writes. And this hope of heaven is already prepared for us. It's not, heaven is not something at the mercy of chances and changes or what's happening on earth or what people are doing. It's assured, it's decided, it's completed, it already exists, it's simply waiting. And so in this season of our discipleship or our pilgrimage, the church invites us, as it were, you know, like, go to the beach, stand and look across the horizon and see what you cannot see. That's what our Christian hope is inviting us to do, is to look across the horizon to something that we know is there but cannot see. That's the faith the writer of the Hebrews talks about. He says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. That is the faith that we hold within us. And this is one of those times when the discipleship calls us to look beyond the obvious and into the mystery. I think that's a, a, a theology that Joseph reminds us of time and time again. Look beyond the obvious into the mystery. That's part of Christian discipleship. We all know that physical death is final. Death is death, and there is no coming back other than Jesus. And I think anyone who has sat with a dead person knows that they are dead. 
Sometimes we say, oh, they look peaceful, they look as though they're sleeping. No, they don't. There is a difference between a dead person and a sleeping person. Death is final. We know that. It's final here on earth, and so we are encouraged to trust in the assurance of our personal resurrection. When speaking of death, the Bible says, precious in the sight of God is the death of his servants. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his servants. That's how God looks upon death. God allows us to die, but because we are so precious to him, he's paid the ultimate price on the cross so that our physical death will just be an entrance into a greater life. I've been a pastor now for, I think it's just over 45 years, longer than you have been born, many of you. And I've noticed how our society and our culture has changed so much in 45 years of how we uh, think about uh, life after death. And for me, um, one of the prime examples of how society has changed in those 45 years of being a pastor is how we celebrate funerals. How, how do you know go to a funeral to back when I started and, and today, and they're totally different. I probably took my first funeral in the mid-1970s. In those days, funeral services were short. Uh, a service that went for one hour was considered very, very long back then. Recently, I've been to some funeral services that have gone for two, three hours. We're celebrating, not celebrating, we're uh, remembering death differently today than we did a little while ago. And one reason is that a funeral service today has changed. We now spend most of the time in a modern funeral service looking backwards, talking about the person who has died. Uh, and three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten people, different people will get up and talk about the person who has died. Because we are uh, looking backwards to what life was like, but not thinking about where they are going. And so we're not spending as much time in funeral services now talking about life after death. We often call a funeral a celebration and thanksgiving service because the focus is on celebrating the life of our loved one and appreciating who we've been. And by the way, there is nothing wrong with that. I actually think it's good. We should do that. We should be doing that sort of thing uh, in a funeral service. But a lot of the modern funeral services have forgotten the forward look. There's not a lot of scripture, not a lot of talk about life after death, not a lot to talk about heaven. I recall that when I was in training uh, to be a minister, I was actually told never to do a eulogy. A eulogy is where you sum up a person's life. Uh, as a minister, don't do that. Uh, because you're going to end up saying all those nice things about Ray Costa. Well, it wouldn't be me saying it about Ray Costa, but I mean the minister who's taking it would be saying all these things about Ray Costa, and most people will be thinking, that minister never knew Ray Costa. So t funerals tended to be far more impersonal. 
I actually think there's been some good changes in today's uh, how we feel well the dead, but I see uh, very little of modern and many modern funerals about the hope for the future. And of course, that simply reflects uh, the modern funeral service. Uh, it reflects the belief of many people, if not most people in society. Many people believe death is final. Death is the end. There's nothing more. Don't bother going to the beach and looking across the horizon because there's nothing over there. So don't even think about it. Don't talk about it. There's nothing after death. So there's very little mention in the modern funeral service about what lies beyond death. There's less focus on hope of the afterlife and heaven. All Saints' Day, All Souls' Day, reminds us that that future look is important in our faith walk. There needs to be a good balance, and I'd be happy to see the pendulum swing back a little bit more to that future hope. So in this All Hallows season, we're reminded we must never give up on the hope we hold as Christians that death is not the end. The scripture, the tradition, uh, the doctrine of the Christian church firmly holds this to be true. You see, when God created human beings, says scripture, he created us for life. We were actually meant to eat of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We weren't meant to eat of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, but we were to eat of the tree of life. We were designed by God to live forever. As the Bible says, God set eternity in the heart of man or in the heart of humans. And the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation resounds with this truth. Life is not the end. There is more and better beyond the grave. And this Christian hope, as I said, is not a hesitant hope. It's not a trembling hope. It's not an uncertain hope that perhaps the promises of God may be true. Christian hope is the confident expectation that they can't be anything else but true. These days, there are many books, podcasts, YouTube interviews on near-death experiences. Uh, the University of Virginia in the United States has a department called the Division of Perceptual Studies that specializes in studying these near-death experience and other aspects of life after death. While some of their research does not always reflect a, a Christian understanding of life and death, it is actually very fascinating and worth a look. But while it may be interesting, I still choose to put my hope and my trust in Scripture and the words of Jesus. I believe Jesus' words, because I live, you shall live also. In over 45 years, as I said, of pastoral ministry, I've actually sat with a number of people uh, as they have died. I recall one instance when I was a young pastor in my early 20s uh, back in Timaru, and I was called to go to the hospital to visit, a, uh, to, to be with a man who was dying. I, I went in, and he was in just a single room, and the, all of his family were in the room. And uh, as I came in, some of them just moved aside and allowed me to go up and sit by his head. Uh, and I went up, and I, I, I couldn't tell whether he was cognizant or not. He was just lying there, his eyes closed. And... Um, I uh, read him some scripture, I took his hand, and I prayed with him, and then I just sat in quietness holding his hand uh, for quite a while, maybe five minutes or something like that, when suddenly 
he opened his eyes. And he looked up and he looked along to the end of the bed where the door into the room was. And he said, I see Jesus. He's coming for me. I looked to the door. I didn't see Jesus. And he died. How do I explain that? I can't. It's part of the mystery that I don't understand. But looking back now over these years of being a pastor, I suspect God gave that gift as much to me as a young pastor in his 20s to hold on to that hope as you minister to other people as much as for the man and for his family, even though it blessed them as well. And I could tell you a few similar stories of lovely Christian people who have walked into the valley of death, come back to tell me what they had experienced. You see, while some people scoff and mock the concept of life after death these days, we must always remember, always remember, that the thought that there might not be life after death is a very recent phenomenon in human history. You go back through the centuries, back through all cultures, from ancient Egypt to Asia to Africa to the Pacific. People have always had a concept of life after death. Maybe not Christian, but God set eternity in the heart of all people at the creation. And all cultures and societies have had this concept that, we, that there is something beyond the grave. It is a very recent phenomenon uh, that some people now don't believe that. I believe that the Christian message is one of the greatest messages to, to is one of the great messages to the greatest threat and fear that humanity has death. Death has been defeated once and for all. Our future resurrection is solidly grounded on Christ's past resurrection. But in the same way that the world tosses scorn and doubt upon the resurrection of Jesus and the hope we have, they do the same thing about heaven. And uh, I'll just finish with a few comments about, uh, about heaven. The Bible speaks about heaven in a variety of ways, and I'm just going to mention one of them. For example, Paul speaks about the third heaven in 2 Corinthians. He talks uh, somewhere else about Christ ascending far above the heavens. Ephesians speaks of uh, us, the Christians, already being in heavenly places uh, with Christ. But today I want to finish by making just a few comments about heaven as being that place where we are with Jesus after we have died. I don't know if any of you listen to the music of Leonard Cohen. Probably not. He's more my vintage than yours. But uh, I quite enjoy some of Leonard Cohen's songs, but not all of his lyrics. But one of the lyrics that he says is, uh, when he's talking about heaven, there's nothing really happening. The place is as dead as heaven on a Saturday night. Uh, Isaac Asimov says, whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. I mean, uh, this is the way some of the world speaks about uh, heaven. Uh, the uh, Gary Larson had a one in one of his fireside cartoons has a person sitting on a cloud. No one is near. There's nothing to do. And the caption reads, "Oh, I wish I'd brought a magazine." <clears throat> 
C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers of the last century, said, there's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is if they can't understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Some people look at heaven from a mocking angle, whereas the Bible speaks of heaven in beautiful terms. And you know those well-known words of Jesus, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And after I've gone and prepared a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you. You see, that image of knee-high fog, clouds, disembodied friends, floating spirits is not what the Bible speaks about. Eternal life is not something eerie-fairy, endless, boring days. Jesus went ahead to prepare a place for us. Jesus doesn't speak about heaven as an empty room or a lonely place, but so full. And don't worry, he says, there's more than enough room for you all. Come to me. There's enough room. Why does he reassure us that there will be plenty of room? Because one of the criticisms of heaven is people say, when you think about all the people who have lived on earth through all these years, how will there be enough room in heaven? You know, that type of, of thought. People who say that haven't read or understood the Bible. God gives us glimpses of heaven, but he never gives us the full picture. We don't have a lot of detail about heaven. We get enough sort of images to entice us that it's a good place to go. But there is a mystery about heaven. We're not given clear details. What we've got are images, pictures, parables, but not photos. For example, you just think for a moment of the heavenly city that John saw. Again, I suspect he's reflecting on those words of Jesus that I've just shared with you in my father's house. There are many rooms, and in Revelation, he gives you a picture of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And you know that passage. Now, the city, though, has jaw-dropping dimensions, and I don't know if you've ever thought about are the size of this heavenly city. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, as I said, always remember we're talking picture images, not photos. Well, just for some uh, fun... I did some calculations of what that might look like. 12,000 stadia is about 2,200 kilometers. Two, if we started here at our church and went off in one direction, we'd get somewhere near the coast of Australia. If we went in the other direction at 90 degrees, we'd get somewhere near Fiji, which forms a square, which is the bottom floor of this heavenly city. But what we are told, it's, the, uh, uh, it's as high as it's, it's long. So the, the uh, city, uh, this, this area here, the square that you're looking at on the screen, is about 18 times the size of New Zealand, 10 times the size of France, larger than India, 
And that's just the ground floor. Uh, being, I think there might be a next one. Can you push that slide on? Is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, and then if, if <laughs> it goes up 600,000 stories high, so just as well there are no aeroplanes or earthquakes in heaven. Um, but again, whatever you do, don't take that literally. What John is saying, heaven is an amazing place. Anything, it's far bigger than anything he had ever seen or could imagine. So All Hallows Tide is the great season in the Christian year to encourage us in our faith walk. It reminds us to be thankful for the people who have helped, inspired, mentored, encouraged us, and encourages us to do the same. At the same time, it's setting us to look across the horizon to the promises of God. It invites us to practice that faith expressed in Hebrews 11 verse 1, to have confidence in what we hope for and to have the assurance about what we do not see. The season assures us of our own resurrection and to anticipate the joy of heaven. It's a great season of hope, and that's the season we are in this week. So let's stand. Let's stand in God's presence. And as we uh, stand here, we reflect on the many people who have played a part and those who continue to play a part in encouraging us in our faith walk. And in quietness, maybe you would like to name before God two or three of those people who really impacted you and say thank you. Father, we thank you for these people who mean so much to us. Use us each day to be witnesses in our families, our workplace, our community, our city, so that something of your glory and goodness may flow through us to others. And may we all be a people of hope in this world where there is fear, where there is anxiety, where there is uncertainty, where there is war, where there is pandemic. And we can be a people of hope as we remember all that you have been to people throughout history. You are the companion of the brave, the upholder of the loyal, the light of the wanderer, the joy of the pilgrim, the guide of the pioneer, the helper of the worker, the refuge of the brokenhearted, the deliverer of the oppressed, the rescuer of the attempted, strength of the victorious, ruler of rulers, friend of the poor, rescuer of the perishing, hope of the dying. And with this confidence and assurance, send us out now into this new week empowered by your grace. Amen. So bless you all. There'll be tea and coffee out in the foyer and plenty of time to sit and talk to each other here. Have a great week. Can't do much this afternoon. It's raining, so 
go to a cafe and enjoy a nice coffee, Peter. And uh, grace and peace to you all. God bless. Have a good time.